Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode three hundred and thirty-five. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Please go there and buy their CDs and go see their shows and tell them the jazz session sent you. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who tweets very humorously at twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L, and he designed the logo for this show. My thanks to All About Jazz for carrying this program. You'll find it on their website, allaboutjazz.com, and they've got a widget that will let you display the current episode of the Jazz Session on your website. Just go to allaboutjazz.com and search for Jazz Session Widget, and then you can put that code on your blog or website. And if you do that, let me know because I'll mention you in my newsletter. You can subscribe to the newsletter at thejazzsession.com. There's a mailing list link right at the top. Just click on that, and you'll get one email each week from me telling you who's on the show that week and giving you some links to other things you may find interesting or you may find terribly boring, I guess. I don't know, but uh, subscribe anyway, and you be the judge. You only get one email a week, and you never get spammed, mostly because I don't know how to do that. Also, this show is member-supported, so if you like what you hear, please do become a member. You can do it for as little as 10 bucks a month, but right now there's a membership special going on for the next two people who become members at the middle or upper levels, either monthly or yearly. You can get a copy of Anthony Wilson's DVD CD set, Seasons, which is really fantastic. So if you become a member at the middle level or the upper level, monthly or yearly, the next two folks who do that will get a copy of that DVD CD set. But everybody who becomes a member will get my enduring love and a mention on the show and a mention in the newsletter and on the website. Oh, and you also get access to some members-only content. Today's guest is the saxophonist Pete Robbins. He's got a new CD out that was recorded live in Basel, and in fact, that's its title. It it, uh, features his transatlantic quartet, and here's the first track from that album. My guest is Pete Robbins. His new album with his Transatlantic Quartet is called Live in Basel. And uh, Pete, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. We are, we're actually in a place I've never been before, but we're in a pretty nice practice room here at the Brooklyn Conservatory of Music. And so maybe before we get into your career as a performing musician, you can just mention how we came to be in this space. Sure. Well, I'm the dean here at the, the Dean of Programs, actually, technically, at the Brooklyn Conservatory. It's a community music school here in Park Slope. I live in Prospect Heights, right in the neighborhood. So I stroll on over here every day and just kind of oversee the um, all the different types of music education that happen here, from jazz to classical, early childhood to seniors. You know, I've 
I've sort of led this parallel life as a music educator, um, in addition to being a performer, composer, saxophonist, you know, I mean, and obviously the two intertwine quite a bit, but I've taught full time for many years. And then the teaching sort of gave way to this job, you know, which sort of brought together my classroom teaching experience and brought together university workshops and things that I've done. And when I've talked about my playing and my writing and things like that, and it's brought together sort of the more in administrative side of, of the, of, of, you know, from from running a music program in a school to booking tours to, like, dealing with the business side of putting out records. It sort of has – I kind of got hired because I've done all those things sort of simultaneously for years, and I'm sort of using all those skills here um, in this job. And it's probably the first time I've ever talked about that in an interview. It feels kind of <laughs> nice. It's kind of good. It seems like <laughs> in some ways – I don't know a ton about the Brooklyn Conservatory, but it seems like unlike many of your contemporaries – who work in places like, you know, the New School or New England Conservatory or wherever it might be, right. that you, you're doing this in a way that is kind of more tied in to the place where this is yeah. and to the regular folks who live around here. Is that Yeah, accurate? that's more the mission of this place. It's a nonprofit organization. It's a community music school that sort of serves. I mean, the, the stated mission is to serve Brooklyn to, to be sort of the hub for music education, um, regardless of age, skill level, financial, uh, situation, you know, race, gender, creed. So it's different than a university where they're, they're sort of catering to people who, 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 I mean, if you're in a music program on the university or college level, you're sort of moving toward a career in music or at least like, a higher degree in music, whereas the community music school, it could be, we have a Suzuki program for kids starting at age three and a half, you know, and, but, you know, there's also, you know, lessons for, for people of any level and, and sort of ensembles for people that play at a higher level. So it's sort of, it's, yeah, like you said, it's more about the community and serving everyone in it from young people and very old people, from people who are just beginners to people who hope to pursue music as a sort of lifestyle. And uh, one final question about this place before we move on to your the performing side of your life. Do you ever, uh, as a result of your performing career, get a chance to bring in the people that you work with? Uh, you know, I just you know I just started here in July, but okay. already we've you know I've made sure that we applied for Chamber Music America's presenting jazz grant, and we got it. So we're bringing uh, Rudrish Mahanthapa's uh, quartet, and they're going to perform the Code Book, the music from Code Book, fantastic here. And we're just trying to iron out a date now. But you know, I have all these. It's like I've I'm, I've now been here long enough that I'm starting to try and implement. You know, to bring in, bring in my guys and right. girls. Like we're, you know, we're starting a partnership, partnership with Sim where they're going to have a few events, um, in the spring, including a benefit for the conservatory. And then they're going to have their first ever, uh, week long intensive for high school age kids here in August. So Ralph and I have been hanging out a lot and trying to tell people what Sim is. Who might Sim's the school, the school for improvised music run by Ralph Alessi. And it's, you know, it couldn't have a more, um, accomplished and talented faculty. So I think, you know, we're starting small with this program. It's going to be Ralph, Matt Mitchell, Drew Griss. No, not Drew Griss. Chris Lightcap. And, oh, I can't remember who's playing drums. I just found out today. But someone great. You know, and so high school kids from all over, you know, we're hoping kids will fly in from wherever. But, uh, you know, also Park Slope kids will have the opportunity to spend a week with these guys and myself. You know, I'm going to make sure I'm around. And, uh... You know, so yeah, I'm, I'm starting. Hopefully, you know, if they let me hang around long enough, I can make it into a hub for all things that I think are important. That's great.
Um, if uh, your discography is any indication, you're a fan of recording live records, which I don't know, seems to me as someone who gets a gazillion records a year sent to me, there's right. just fewer and fewer of those than there used to be. I mean, my collection growing up was a ton of live records right. by everybody that we knew. And now it seems to be mostly kind of crafted in studios. Can you talk about what attracts you about recording live? Well, you know, I'm attracted to both models. I think I moved into the live stuff because I had done three studio albums before that. The last of which was like a big project called Do the Hate Laugh Shimmy. And around the time when I had recorded that, I had started playing with the, the group that I ended up calling Silent Z with Tyshawn, Sori, Thomas Morgan, Mike Gamble, Jesse Newman, and, you know, Elliot Cardinal was playing keys. And it was this big, loud, raucous, kind of very elastic kind of group. And it was, and, and I felt like, we, I wasn't capturing everything we do when we recorded in the studio for those tracks on Hate, Laugh, Shimmy that, that we did. So I decided that the next thing was going to be to try and capture something live by that band. And so that was, so then the record I did next was Silency Live and, you know, just tried to cap, capture the character of that group. Cause I think just the studio environment, you're, you, you know, you can't, you know, a lot, you're either in a separate room or you're behind glass, you got headphones on, there's no crowd that you're feeding off, probably most importantly. Sure. You know, so it's just a different, you can't have the same experience. And so I found with that first recording, with the Silency Live, uh, you know, there were positives and negatives to it, you know, when I look back on it in retrospect, much like there were to doing studio records. But I felt like I wanted to follow through and continue documenting like live performances of these different groups that I was dealing with. So the next came the unnamed quartet with Nate Woolley, Daniel Levin, Jeff Davis. And, you know, that's a group that just improvises freely. And we recorded a concert and put that out on not two records. And then this one, the transatlantic quartet live in Basel. Um, and I feel like it was this little, you know, uh, looking back, I, I mean, it wasn't intentional, but I kind of had this little trilogy of studio records and then I ended up now with this sort of trilogy of live records, and now I'm ready to go back to the studio. So the next one's a double album, right? <laughs> right, <laughs> a double live, or maybe four discs, That's two right, live exactly. and two studio. Right. That's great. Um, you mentioned both positives and negatives to live recording. I mean, it seems like one of the negatives might be that you get what's there. Right. As opposed to what you might want to craft right. in a studio situation. Right. 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 And, you know, with Do the Hate Laugh Shimmy, the last studio album that I did, we had, you know, there was a lot of, uh, like, post-production type work that went into it. And that was part of the compositional process for me. You know, that was, like, a really integral to what I, how I wanted the music to come out. And, yeah, so it's a little more nerve-wracking to know that you just have, like, one or two nights and, like, whatever comes out goes on the record. But... But it, but the whole process has kind of helped me embrace that, you know, now that having listened to the record a bunch of times and it's like, it's, you know, sometimes, you know, as, as we all get older, it's easier to, you have to, you all have to come to terms with the fact that you can't control every element of everything. Yeah. And so I think this has been a good growing up experience for me that way, where it's like, just let it be what it is. It's a great band and it is what it is. And I'm, I'm really happy with how it came out.
not only is it a great band, but it's obviously a band that spent a lot of time playing together. And I know that the quartet had done many dozens of shows yeah. uh, around the time that this record was made. Yeah. Can you talk about the guys in this band and how you came together? Yeah, we met, I mean, through the Copenhagen Jazz Festival mainly, which I started playing at um, probably in 07, no, maybe it was before that, 05, because I did, uh, I lived there for four or five months in 02, met some people, and then, you know, just one thing led to another, and I ended up going back there in 05. I had booked a couple of gigs, and I put together sort of a hybrid Danish-American band, and we played a bunch of shows, and it was great. And it was that was sort of my getting my feet wet in, like, playing overseas. That was the first that I had done. And as you can probably imagine, it's sort of addictive <laughs> um, for a lot of reasons. But so that, so that was the beginning, and I kept going year after year. And somewhere along the line, I met Simon who was there because of Mikkel. So Simon German is this uh, is the bass player on, on the Transatlantic record, and he is Irish. But shortly after I met him, he moved to Brooklyn, so we hung out in Brooklyn some. And then I kept going back to the festival, and we met, you know, I met Mikkel through Simon because they had gone to university together in The Hague some years before. And actually, you know, I met Kevin Brow first, I should say. In 05, when I first started going to the festival, we ended up doing a gig together. He's a Canadian guy. He's from Toronto, but he moved to Copenhagen to go to school, fell in love with his Danish teacher, and married her and stayed there. <laughs> so, and then, so that became the band after a while, and we started playing at the festival a bit. And Mikkel does a lot of touring throughout Europe. He, he brings Mark Turner over and sort of has a quartet with him and Mark at the front of it. And so he was like, man, you gotta start, just start booking. Just, you know, here's some phone numbers, just start. So I did, and now it's just sort of part of what I am constantly doing. And this is, this is the group that has done the, the bulk of the shows that I've played overseas in the last six or seven years. Were there other iterations of a quartet, a Europe-based quartet, before you settled on these three musicians? Or did you know kind of right from the start that this is what it's going to be? I think, I mean, when I was playing at the festival in Copenhagen, we had different, you know, it started as, you know, Creston Osgood was playing drums and Ivan Upsvik was over there playing at the festival. So he played bass and guitar player named Ryan Blotnick was playing and some other people. And then, but once, once I, uh, this was kind of the only version of this particular group. Once, once I kind of started hanging with Simon and Kevin and Mikkel and we played one gig and like Mikkel and I started hanging out and talking about, you know, booking and touring and things like that. It just seemed pretty clear that this is what we were going to do. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned a few minutes ago, Elliot Cardinot, who uh, lends his name to the first track, I think. I'm not yeah. looking at the back of the record, but yeah. uh, on this, uh, can you talk about the repertoire on the album? On the album, yeah. sure. Yeah, the first song's Elliot song. It was, yeah, I wrote it for Elliot, who's one of the sweetest people that I know. He, you know, like many others, uh, was in New York for a while playing incredible music. He's an amazing piano player. And then he moved to Western Mass for a while. Um, and, you know, is still there and continues to play and is just an incredible guy. And you know, I just wrote this song with him in mind. Um, yeah, the second tune is a song called There, There. The first few songs on the album, the first three, are songs that I've recorded previously. But with this particular quartet, I really felt compelled to like bring out some of my older material and play it in a way that's sort of clear and harmonic and concise. I feel like that's what's strong. That's, that's the strength of this particular lineup that, um, and it's a little, you know, especially coming off of Silent Z and the Unnamed Quartet, which I would not use the word concise. <laughs> I mean, which is not a bad thing. No. It, I mean, it was, it was elaborate and, you know, in, you know, expansive and incredible, but this is just a totally different thing, which is great. And so, but it felt like the right thing to do to bring back some of these older tunes. So Elliot's song was on Silent Z Live. There, there was on Weights and Measures, which I made in like 06 or something. But it seemed like it ended up fitting the personality of this group perfectly. Mm. And Simon really gets to shine. He does some loop stuff and that sounds great. And then Inkhead is also from Weights and Measures. And then we recorded three other songs that uh, hadn't made it to an album yet. Quiet Space, Left Behind is sort of a ballad, I guess. It's sort of the most sort of straight-ahead type ballad song I've probably ever written. It doesn't change meters. It's kind of in a key. 
you know, but I wrote it for... You I know, wish people could see the incredulous look on your face while you're describing your own tune. It doesn't change meters, it's in a I key. Know. I'm shocked and chagrined with myself. But, you know, I mean, I don't want to... It's it, that's the way the tune needed to be. It just kind of it, it wrote itself that way, and I, and it's and I would do I would do it over again a million times sure. in four four in a key. It's, <laughs> that's that's uh, it's it's great. It's fine. We actually recorded it um, with Ryan Blotnick on his record called Music Needs You for Songline some years ago, but I had never done it on one of my albums. And uh, and then Hoy Polloi, actually another older tune that I never recorded, and um, a tune called Hope Tober. It winds up the album. That's sort of a newer one that I wrote with another friend in mind. I guess I book into this album with sort of tunes I've dedicated to to people that I'm close to. Um, great composer and guitarist named Adam Tober, currently living in Japan, making a living like repairing and flipping vintage guitars. <laughs> so what could be better than that? That's fantastic. Yeah, he deserves a song. For that. <laughs> uh, one of the things I like most about the kind of the soundscape of this album is the use of the electric bass, which I'm, I love and I just think isn't used enough. In fact, I think it's almost like something people intentionally don't use, and it adds so much to this recording. I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about your choice to have that rather than an upright. The choice comes mainly from just who Simon is as a musician. I mean, like have, Simon is, is, a, is a beautiful guy, and he's a great, incredibly responsive, warm, and... Uh, generous musician and he's a pleasure to play with and I he could play the tuba and I would have had him in that group <laughs> but what I love in in addition to his sort of musical personality like the the way he deals with the instrument is 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 great I mean he's you know, he plays six string bass so he can you know get up, way up in the guitar range for some solos and some sort of double and triple stops and textural things and he can get way low when we want to like kind of bring it a little more groove wise he can play low d's and c's and things and he's got i think it's a custom made instrument because he has a like a mute that he can turn on and off and he uses it on a lot and the sound i think is incredible because you get a lot of times with electric bass you get not as much attack and a lot more sustain than you get from upright bass. And that's when it can start to get fusion-y and like a little bit sort of like you want to stay away from it. That's where like sure. the stigma comes from, you know, as we all know. But Simon avoids that with the mute and by playing with a pick or plectrum or whatever you, I can't, I can't remember which is which, <laughs> but I think it's a, technically I think it's a plectrum, but I'll call it a pick because that's, that's what I call it. Yeah. So, but, but I think with all those, so, so between, the mute and the pick and Simon and, and his approach, I think he avoids the cliches and the, the sort of negative associations that many of us have with electric bass. And it's something that I particularly would sort of under other circumstances or with other electric bassists would approach with apprehension because whenever, like, the word fusion inevitably appears in reviews regularly of my records. And I imagine with this record, it may appear more than ever because of electric bass and it makes me i don't i don't like it i think i mean i don't it's i mean that could be a separate question we could talk about it if you want sure it's uh it's it's uh it's it's ridiculous i think but but i think but simon avoids all that musically i think he he avoids cliche he avoids cheesiness he avoids like you know any association you might have with jazz fusion be it positive or negative Thank you. 
So you've you've opened that door. It yeah. Seems we let's, may as well step through it. Let's do it. <laughs> let's do it. Tell tell me about fusion and that. Label. I mean, I'm not an expert on jazz fusion. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a genre unto itself, and it had its heyday. You know, back when it had its heyday, and it still exists now. And you know, um, but. I mean, to me, I picture, like, you know, multiple synthesizers and mullets and mustaches and fog, you know, and, and like, you know, maybe if, you know, you know what I mean. That's fusion. I mean, like, maybe ponytails and maybe gnomes on the album covers and things. And, like, that, I mean, like, if I were much older, you know, if I were, like, a teenager in the early 70s, I probably would have been super into it. But... And, and I, there's a lot of fusion that I really appreciate, and there are incredible musicians playing that kind of stuff. There were and there are, and I don't want to denigrate any of those people, but I don't consider my music fusion. I mean, it's fusion in the barest sense that it fuses different styles, you know? Like, there's jazz influence, there's rock influence, there are other influences too. So if you want to call it fusion because of that, then I, I'm not going to object to that. But the word fusion has this very clear connotation stylistically and it points to this type of music that I don't think that my music is I think right after this interview, I'm going to be talking to you about our new band, Mullets, Mustaches, and Fog. <laughs> we'll, we'll do, we can do that off. Hey, if we're going to go for here, it, let's do it. I'm, I will go for it. <laughs> well, it's funny because in some ways you've anticipated the next thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is the fact that this this record to me sounds very much of its time. And it sounds that way without being like pretentiously of its time or without having to without having to shove in a lot of stuff that seems obviously there to put it in the present day. It just right. feels like a band making music now by people right. who are about this age and right. who have listened to the music that's happened for the last, you know, several decades. Right. Um, can you maybe just talk a little bit about your idea of the aesthetic of the band and the? Yeah, I mean, what I what I sort of I touched on it before in talking about how I chose the music for the band. You know, sure. it felt like a lot of the older. The tunes that I had written, like around the weights and measures period, like five, six, even seven, even nine years ago, seemed to play to the strengths of this band, which is like, you know, meters that are mixed but not mixed for the sake of mixing them. Harmony that's, that's, that can have twists and turns and surprises but not for the sake of those twists and turns and surprises. And, you know, forms where we could jump around from different types of feels and touching on earlier sections and then maybe playing a section and having it never come up again, but for compositional reasons and not just for the sake of doing it. I feel like this what this band is about is those things and pretty much just those things, as well as the soloing and as well as the vibe that we get like playing on stage. It's not about, you know chops and showing you know that kind of thing it's not about trying to do something either compositionally or playing wise that's never been done that's just not that wasn't my agenda artistically with this group it's not my agenda when i tour with this band it's not sort of any of these guys it's not their thing as artists and i value that because i do i mean my i'd be very happy if I felt like, or if other people felt like, but mostly if I felt like I was doing something that hadn't been done before. But that's not my main objective. Certainly with this record. It's about, it's about the band. It's about, you know, playing music that I think is compelling and rewarding to play and to listen to and just, you know, putting our, putting our heart and soul into it on the bandstand and then we made a record out of it. Yeah. It's, 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 you know, and then people can people can decide <laughs> sure. what they think of it beyond that. But that 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 was where this record comes from. Is that any, anything that you had to be, or that you decided to be explicit about when the band was getting together, or did that 
is that why you chose these particular three guys? Because it just came with the package. That's it came with the package, and then I went with the package. You know, it was like the, the, it's sort of those things happened simultaneously. It was never anything that's ever had to be said. Um, it was just the guys. It was we were inclined to go that way, and then sort of my choices in the tunes and our approach just sort of evolved in that way. I I, I have given almost no stylistic direction to this band at all. It's just about like you know, here's the music. Sure. You know, play this part a little quieter than the last part. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's the most kind of I do. And, you know, I think, yeah, it's it's something I like to think about a lot. I put a lot of thought into, I mean, it's so important to me what the, you know, who who's who's in the band and what is the band about and what is this project going to be. And it's like, I, I don't want to be in a situation where I have to give lots of directions. Because you really, I don't find that I've ever really had to do that. It's like if I get the right musicians and I present them with music that plays to their strengths individually and as a band, then it just works. You know, I've been, I feel like I've been lucky that way. I've never really, I mean, I think if I found myself in a situation where I had to give lots of direction and like a lot of correcting and changing, of course, I would, my, my first thought would be this is not right. Like something has to change either in what I'm doing or, or, with the musicians that are involved with the project. And you seem both, I guess, kind of lucky and, and kind of skillful in combination that, I mean, this kind of harkens back to the way bands used to be where a leader would be super careful about picking the right people and then they would play together a lot. Yeah. And they would form an identity collectively. And at least uh, certainly in the case of the Transatlantic Quartet, I mean, you picked people you thought were the right people and then you played a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, it sounds stupid to have to say it out loud like that, but in some ways it's not as common as it. Yeah, I mean, was. it's hard because it's it's hard to, in real life, it's hard to get that happening. And I feel I've been lucky with this group, we've been able to do it. We played, as you said, dozens of concerts. And, you know, yeah, it's just, it's been, it's been able to work that way. With some of my earlier records, it was the same too, because we were playing in New York a ton, like Weights and Measures and Hate Laugh Shimmy. The guy's playing at, you know, Detour once a month back when that was a viable place. And, you know, Cornelia Street, I've always played at a lot. And all these little, you know, I used to, you know, play, you know, just there were periods when I was playing twice a month with like Dan Weiss or Tyshawn and Thomas Morgan and all these other people. And then we would go, we would have played 25 shows and then we'd go and record. I mean, and I mean, it's, it's hard to put into words when you listen to a recording, um, that quality that results from that. But, but I mean, you're you're talking about it, so yeah. it sounds. I mean, but it's but it's so important. And it's you can. So important. It's almost easier to hear it when it's not there, yeah. than what it is in some in yeah. some cases. You know, it's really it's clear. I mean, sometimes that's exciting too. Yeah. You know, the, the combination of four people on stage who are doing it for the first time, and sometimes yeah. magic happens there. I hope so because that's what my next project is going to be. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. Well, yeah. the, but I'm excited but, about that too. But, yeah. You know, but with that, which is so the next project is something called Reactance. It's another quartet. Um, with Vijay Iyer on piano and Ivan Opsvik on bass and Tyshawn Sori on drums. <laughs> well, I think you've stacked the deck in your favor there, probably. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think so, and I think that I, you know, since the project was planned many months ago, I've written music. You know, I'm so I've I've never I, I, I'm so familiar with all of their playing that it was easy to write songs hearing them playing them. So I've like been on this like giant kick of writing all new just all this new material with this group in mind so i feel like i mean which which is something i've never really done well we'll play the cd release for this album transatlantic on february 11th at cornelia we'll go into the studio february 13th having done one rehearsal and one gig but what i'm counting on <laughs> is obviously the caliber caliber of the musicians the fact that we'll have played a gig and a rehearsal and the fact that i've had these guys playing these tunes in my head for the better part of a year so so we'll see. I mean, I'm sure it'll be. I'm sure it'll be great. Well, and I wanted to ask you about exactly that um, as it relates to this Live and Basil album too, because you you kind of went back in your own repertoire and pulled out songs that you did not write with these musicians right. in mind. Right. So um, was there adaptation that was necessary, or did as you said before, these th you just pulled out songs that suggested they didn't need to be adapted? Yeah, I think it w I was lucky enough to be able to just pull out songs and they didn't need to be adapted too much, in the, except in the sense that when I had played them earlier, the ensemble was bigger. It was like five or six people. So there were things that got kind of stripped away mm. and it was sort of left with the essential elements, you know, like I'll play a melody, 
Mikkel will play harmony, chords. Simon will either follow the chords or play a bass line that I've written. And Kevin will play the drums. And it was just, you know, I, I had enjoyed in the earlier iterations of these tunes layering other things on top of that, doubling bass lines, adding textural elements, doubling melodies, different textures and things. And for this, we just got rid of that and left sort of the more basic elements. And so, yeah, so the arrangements kind of made themselves. It didn't, it didn't, no addition, just a little bit of subtraction. And you said just a minute ago that it, that it was not your common practice to write with specific musicians in mind. So were you, were you writing parts that had, I mean, obviously you're probably writing parts sometimes that were for specific instruments, but how yeah. did you go about the compositional process without a determined ensemble? I mean, I think I, I guess I always did, but I, I guess I always had people in mind when I wrote tunes, but it, they, that was, I was able to do that because we had performed together. Mm. You know, it's Silent Z. We we started by playing tunes that we had played with Centric. So Centric was Dan Weiss, Thomas, Elliot Cardinot, Sam Sadigursky, and myself. And then Silent Sea sort of grew out of that with Jesse Newman on cornet and effects and Mike Gamble on guitar and effects and Tyshawn on drums. And we started by playing the Centric tunes in just this new kind of much more expanded and sort of sonically diverse way. And... I was like, oh, that's what this will sound like. Okay, I can write for this. This this works. But so it was so I heard the band first and then I wrote the tunes. But for this project coming up, it's more like I hearing the band in my head as I write the tunes and then probably it'll probably it'll sound better in real life than it sounds in my head, <laughs> I would think. But for Transatlantic it was more I mean, I had, it was it was sort of I, we just started playing tunes that I had and that sort of allowed me to hone my sense of what existing tunes of mine would work. I mean, it just kind of happened naturally that way. It just didn't, it didn't strike me as begging for new tunes. I mean, I was writing, but you know what I think it was? I was also doing Silent Z simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So when I was writing, I was writing for Silent Z, and then I had Transatlantic, and I was pulling from my older sort of library of tunes. You uh, you just mentioned uh, some live dates, but uh, as people if people are listening to this in real time, this is mm. the first week in January 2012, and you've got a bunch of shows coming up over the next right. like four weeks. Can you tell folks what those I've are? I've got Winter Jazz Fest this Friday with a project with Simon German on bass. We kind of put this together ourselves. So it's myself and Oscar Noriega on alto oh, and wow. John Hollenbeck and Chess Smith on drums. <laughs> That's all right, then. And then Simon probably through a giant amp standing in the middle of everybody playing six string bass it's gonna it's gonna be great we rehearsed the other day playing some of my tunes and some assignments it'll be great and then sort of i begin the process of like taking the new tunes that i've written for this upcoming recording and playing them live so on the 10th of january i'm playing at corzo and park slope and on the 25th 25th is another project with simon and that's at seeds on vanderbilt ave in, in brooklyn and um, 
Yeah, so it's busy month that way. And then we just sort of gear toward February 11th at Cornelia, which is sort of this hybrid thing. It's a CD release for Transatlantic Live in Basel. Um, and, but it'll be sort of the tune up and debut of this reactance group with Vijay and Ivan and Tyshawn and myself. And this show is in no way geographically tied to New York. So I know you're also in New England later this month when you mentioned right. those shows. That's right. January 20th, we're at Phillips Academy in Andover, Mass. And the 21st, we're at the Radio Bean in Burlington, Vermont. And Andover is your hometown, right? Yeah. yeah. It's my, my alma mater. Very nice. Yeah. Cool. Um, you're also a, a you're married and you're a dad now, and yep. I wonder if that has changed your focus as a performer or the way you approach performing your composition now that at least more of your time oh, is apportioned so to other things. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's focused my time more, so I think I use my time more efficiently in terms of writing and in terms of shedding. Has it affected the music directly? That's hard to say. Some combination of like, you know, being a father and just sort of getting older. I'm 32 now. Not that that's old, but you know, emerging from my 20s into my 30s. I think I just had this conversation an hour ago with my good friend Elliot Krimsky, who's an incredible piano player. But it's it's sort of you know, fatherhood and getting a little older has I think focused my music in a way. That, you know, it's, it's, I'm allowed, I'm, I'm allowing myself to be sort of more communicative and more clear and more, it feels a little more grown up, you know, and that sort of has manifested itself more in these tunes that I'm writing for the Reactance Project where they're sort of more harmonic. Actually, somehow the meters have become really complicated. I don't know. I figured it would have gone the other way, right. but it's like meters changing every bar. But that sort of, in, in a way, has to do more with the phrasing of the lines than it does with math, mm. you know, and like mathematic jazz aerobics. It's like not about that. It's about sort of phrasing and, and harmony and melody that way. But anyway, so it's, I, I think, yeah, sort of growing up has helped me to like focus the music, be a little more sincere to my voice and like not care as much what other people think and sort of do it more for me and then feel good about putting it out there even though it's really for me it sounds to hear you talk about the kind of chronology of your music that that as each thing is flowering some new thing is germinating and then flowering almost at the same time yeah. it seems like silent <laughs> yeah. z and transatlantic and unnamed and the new band that yeah. they all seem to be popping off kind of one after the other do you find that they kind of cross-pollinate each other to keep this metaphor yeah going a bit? yeah they um, they, I mean, one sort of gives way to the next. So I, in the sense that I, I like to, I mean, going from transatlantic, you know, alto, guitar, electric bass and drums to reactants, alto, piano, upright bass and drums is probably the smoothest transition that i've made between two records one actual and one theoretical of course but it will come out at some point sure <laughs> um leading up to that it's i i've really embraced the idea of sort of contrast from one project to the next like silent you know hate laugh shimmy studio record pretty polished from there i went to silent z live is kind of hectic and live and kind of rough sounding and then from there to the unnamed quartet, which is no compositions at all, which kind of flies in the face of what I've done in the records before that. And going from unnamed quartet, which is completely unstructured, to, to transatlantic, which is coming out now and is sort of so clear and concise, I kind of get a kick out of that. I mean, I don't know what you would think as a member of the media, <laughs> so to speak. But, but for me, I think it's cool. I, I like the idea of sort of looking back on my artistic output and being like, ha, ah, I kept, you know, throwing curveballs like each step of the way. But, you know, saying that now, relating it to your earlier question, maybe that's going to slow down. You know, I mm. could see, I could see, you know, I could see that slowing down the idea of like jumping from one disparate project to another and just, yeah, that may, that may, that may change. I don't know. Too early to say. Yeah. And it also sounds like, I mean, you've, you've now created enough kind of solid bases of, uh, band concepts that yeah. you could start returning to things you've done and just see, yeah. you know, what, what would transatlantic sound like in five more years of playing right. together. And I mean, I, that seems like the possibilities for that are really exciting too. Yeah. That's pretty, that's pretty likely. That's yeah. pretty likely. And you know, there, yeah, I think that's pretty likely. 
Uh, toward the beginning of this interview, you used the word addictive to describe playing in Europe, and this is a band, the Transatlantic Quartet, on the Live in Basel record that has played, like we said, like 60 or 70 shows in Europe. Can you talk about that experience and what makes it addictive to play there? Oh, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of addictive elements, I would say. I mean, one, one thing is just the puzzle that is putting a tour together. You know, I've, you know, dabbled in collaborating with booking agents and I've sort of settled into this rhythm of doing the whole thing myself where uh and mostly over email and you know skyping with bookers also but it's it's addictive in the sense that you know when you're doing a crossword puzzle and there's a really hard you know word that you can't fill in you finally get it and it's like ah you know that's what putting a gig in the calendar is like for me putting a gig in that piece of putting a tour together and that's been an addictive process for me because with each subsequent tour it doesn't it doesn't get more extensive and lucrative in a linear fashion with each tour but over the you know body of the you know 15 or so tours that i've booked maybe 20 it they get more um extensive and sort of more robust um so that's that's an addictive process i mean it's addictive to play with the same band nights in a row and to just hang with the same guys that you're playing with, and especially guys that you get along with really well. Not that it wouldn't work for girls; it would be totally the same. But it's it's that's addictive. Obviously, the food and drink in these lovely European countries it can be. Um, I mean, if not addictive, then highly pleasurable and, <laughs> and, and a little sad to leave at the end. But like we were speaking about earlier, you know, with the the new, you know, I have an 18-month-old son now, so it's like there's this new wrinkle with touring where it's like I go through little periods of not wanting to be on the road and wanting to be at home hanging out with the family. So, but um, but that's just yeah, that's just another element and in, in the in the process. And is there uh, uh, some difference you can put your finger on to playing in front of European audiences versus playing here in the states? It's interesting because. I mean, well, for, I mean, for one thing, there's more, obviously, there's more government support over there. So there are clubs that may not survive over here that can survive over there because of the government support. Now, of course, with the way Europe is going, this is changing. I mean, and hopefully it's temporary. But, uh, so, so there, there are more places to play sort of per square kilometer, as it were, which is great. I think within Europe, there's a lot of variation, you know, sort of the further north you go, the more sort of polite and kind of stoic the audiences are, which took me a minute to realize that had nothing to do with their level of enjoyment, wasn't a reflection of that at all. And the further south you go, you know, the people are, you know, like Spain, they're smoking in the club and they're sort of cheering you on and they're sometimes kind of talking a little bit here and there and there's glasses clinking. It's just a, a whole, a whole different feel. So, I mean, it really runs the gamut, but I would, I've, I mean, overall, it's, it's, it's easier. It's, I, I, it's, to me, it's much easier to book a tour in Europe than it is to book one here for financial reasons. And I mean, part of the finances, I'm sure, are tied into more curious audiences, audiences that are open to music that they don't necessarily quote unquote understand in a way that American audiences need to feel like they get it. You know, European audiences, it seems like this is a huge generalization, obviously, but it puts something about it has to be true that they allow themselves to listen to a concert where they don't have to quote unquote understand every element and they can just accept the music on an aesthetic level, let it wash over them a little bit and still enjoy themselves and not feel like it wasn't for them. My guest is saxophonist Pete Robbins. His new album with the Transatlantic Quartet is live in Basel. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for coming on the show. You too. Thanks so much for having me.
That's music from Pete Robbins and his Transatlantic Quartet from their new CD, Live in Basel. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. Thanks for listening. Please do become a member if you like what you hear and help keep this show going. It's much appreciated, and I do need your memberships to keep the Jazz Session going, and I mean, most honestly, to keep myself going. That's what uh, that's what keeps me living indoors and eating food. So please do become a member if you can and help support the show. And in the meantime, get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.